Monster Game Night is a dark comedy actual play podcast that contains personal and political horror. This show is not appropriate for children, and adults can find content warnings in our episode descriptions. Welcome to our Vampire the Masquerade Chronicle, Bluegrass by Night, where our storyteller pits us sweet, innocent vampires against a group of crazed cultists who control the fictional city of Jamestown. I am Russell, and I play our local Lasombra, Gordon. This is Ben playing the absentee Putinesca Tommaso. This is Nick playing Jason, the investigator Ban Huakim. And Josh playing Clear Visions, the I couldn't come up with another adjective, Toreador. Hey, I'm Mike. I'll be your storyteller. But yeah, so we're doing something a little bit different today, right? Yeah. We're yeah, going to be asking some like questions and getting to know our characters and our players a little bit better. So Mike... Tell us, what's your favorite thing about the V5 system slash World of Darkness in general? I'm going to give some background to people listening, and I think that it's informative. I have run D&D for a long time. I ran a small amount of 3.5 in college, and I also then ran 5th edition. I skipped totally over 4E, but then I ran 5th edition for about four years, and my complaints with D&D were that it gets slow and it plods, as I'm doing right now. So I pivoted to Blades in the Dark by John Harper, which is an incredible system. I encourage anyone to check it out. We loved it. We had a good time with it. But what I wanted was a more freeing and flexible world. And what I realized was that V5 captures a lot of modern game design elements in that it lets you run combat that is gritty and cinematic and brutal and meaningful, but it is not built around combat. That I can go four and five sessions without combat because... Nobody is getting in fights every day, right? Like, that is, nobody lives their life that way. Yeah, speak for yourself. Okay, yeah, I don't get in fights every day. And I wanted to run a game that was like that. And I also love that it is immersive because you, everyone can relate to being a human being in an urban fantasy game or a monster in an urban fantasy game. You have the setting in mind already. And I find that it makes for really awesome role play. So dovetailing off of that, just follow up really quickly. Did you have any certain expectations coming in that have been changed by us actually sitting here and playing the system? I thought I would use the social combat rules a lot more, and I have looked at them a lot, and I have never used them other than to like look at someone and be like, you missed this roll, so you take a point of willpower damage. Kind of dovetailing off that question, though. You know, 5th edition, they really center everything around these three pillars, right? Social exploration and combat right do you ever foresee our game kind of rewarding players for doing an exploration kind of kind of setting within the world of darkness well i have to be very careful about answering that question because one of your players is in possession of a very interesting map at this moment and i will let you guess as to whom that might be so yes there will be some exploration you will be rewarded for it yeah somebody's holding on on us <laughs> to get into, I guess, sort of just gen general cast kind of questions, uh, something that I think that we've talked about a lot of off recording, but not really discussed too much in this type of setting is what was everyone's sort of just general inspiration for their character? I think I told all of, all of you that I had an idea of like gangs of New York. Like I wanted to be like kind of gangster enforcer and Really, coming up the lines with Tommaso, I kind of didn't intend to really go the typical kind of mafioso route, but 
that was just kind of how things evolved as I worked through it. Okay. Yeah, I like that. I, I really get that vibe. So that's cool. How about Jason? What, what kind of uh, vibes are you feeling for him? Uh, I just wanted to do something that I've done differently from characters I've played in the past. So that's basically where where Jason kind of come from. What kind of, I guess, what kind of characters do you normally play? Uh, normally, uh, in our last game, like I played uh, a gangrel, which I thought was a lot of fun. Definitely one of my favorites, a go-to. Just being that uh, rowdy, chaotic, and uh, Jason's just more... A lot more centered and uh, down to earth than a lot of my characters would be. Very nice. Yeah, I kind of did the same thing with Tommaso. I just was like, I need to play something different. I'm usually like a charismatic person that can get through talking. Obviously, I think the listeners can tell Tommaso's not great at using his words or barely keeps himself in control. So playing a total asshole is something that's very different for me. Yeah, absolutely. I personally. I was a little judging there. (laughs) I mean, I personally play a lot of, like, typically smart characters. Gordon is a little bit of a, kind of a different side to that, right? Like, there's intelligence characters, and then there's those just super smart, like, super manipulative, able to push those buttons of people. And that's kind of where I was going with, with Gordon. As to his specific, like, origins, it was actually because I read a book from the Banson Murders. It was called Chaos. And I think I've told you guys this before, but essentially it looks into like the secret history of the 60s with the CIA involved and that kind of stuff. And that kind of like was the core of Gordon there for a long time. What about Clear Visions? You guys did sort of the opposite. I wanted to really play into something that I enjoy playing. I like to play a very social, very like charismatic, personable kind of character. And I knew that I wanted to be all social all the time. Also, the Colonel Sanders dating simulator is hilarious. And I knew that I wanted to (laughs) have some type of like, I'm not originally from sort of like the bluegrass region. So I wanted to have that connection. And I was like, what better way to tie on to than somebody who is this Dr. Phil Colonel Sanders medium hybrid of just the worst personality traits. So going along with that, right, we haven't really seen clear visions uh, channel a whole lot, right? Or even really dig deep into his uh, medium past. Do Are we expecting to see more of that uh, in the coming episodes? Or As a player, yes. I think that I, I did take like premonition and I plan on taking some aura reading type powers. So I think that that is something that I would like to talk about and sort of bring up just via disciplines. But also... He would be very happy to give you a premonition any time if you can make it worth his while. Also, I think that a lot of the premonitions that he does yeah, are just the kicker. Yeah, they're personally fun for him. So if he can get around not using it, that's fine. He, he tries to do it when it's something interesting or something that he can use to manipulate the situation. So going along with that, um, does he intend for like the visions and premonitions that he gets? Is he wanting them to be helpful in any way? Or is it exactly just for his fun, his financial gain? No, so I, I really do think that he tries to help as much as he can with his visions. But there are moments he is a monster. 
So there is definitely times when he is clearly bored, does not give two shits, and can use them to definitely screw up a situation. And I'm looking at... And tries to be helpful when he's very clearly not. (laughs) Well, yeah, and I'm looking at, like, purposefully telling people the wrong horses to bet on and stuff, because at the end of the day, it's fun for him. So speaking of monsters, Mike... Uh, what kind of monsters are we expecting to see <laughs> uh, coming forward in this campaign? You haven't seen enough? No, we haven't, obviously. I've seen <laughs> enough. I decline to answer that question. I will say that Minerva had a very long and storied life and left a lot of surprises in your future. That is a very non-committal, non-answer that I appreciate. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> I'm not shocked I just by can't that. Give at it all. away. There will be. There are more werewolves. That's. I'll give that answer away for free. There are more vampires oh, in my really? Vampire the Masquerade game. All right. Was there a specific reason for the bone gnar sticking to the werewolves? So sniff the exhaust was very nearly a silver fang. I came close to making him a silver fang because I wanted him to be the embodiment of a werewolf who has set himself against the twistedness that vampires represent. But I also think it's very important that werewolves are broken. Werewolves are crusading heroes, but they are all fundamentally broken in some way. For a bone gnar, it's more physically obvious and easier to roleplay the way in which they are broken than it is for something like a silver fang. So for those of of our listeners who may not be Werewolf the Apocalypse fans, bone gnars are the downtrodden, lower-class werewolves. Silver Fangs are these upper-class crusaders who all of them have a some kind of mental quirk or condition that's almost Malkavian-esque. Sniffs the Exhaust is here circling the bluegrass region to prevent from growing out and taking over the rest of the region of this beautiful wonderful lush forest to stop that from falling to this like industrialization and awful growth that could happen what that means is because i have a crusader i need him to have a flaw and the flaw i chose was bone gnar which means he's poor doesn't understand social necessities doesn't understand isn't great at subtleties or nuance is just very upfront and he's going to get in your face and he's going to do it his way because he's used to just getting shit upon also doesn't have a lot of respect from the local werewolf community. Can you just tell us a little bit more about Silver Fangs? I, it's not one that I'm really familiar with. I, I know you mentioned that he was almost one of them. So I was just wondering, why was he almost one of those instead? Because I was trying to think about who would be taking this upon themselves, because the Bluegrass region is not an area that any werewolf is going to choose to defend, because it's not prestigious. There's nothing really special about it. And it's, we're getting into this. Gordon came so close to seeing some stuff last time. It's an area that has been, it's already kind of gone. It's already kind of destroyed by the coal mining and other activities that have taken place. And so my thinking was that who gets, who sets themselves this task of defending this area? And my first thought was Silver Fangs because they're, they're courageous and strongest. They would take a huge immense challenge upon themselves. But then I decided this was a this was more of a burden. Jason, so far we've seen a lot of humans being killed by the coterie. And Jason really hasn't spoken up about this. 
and it's something we've kind of talked about in the past, but I want to bring to the listeners um, now, which is how does Jason feel about these innocents being killed? And how does he reconcile that to his own goals as a crusader, as someone to protect the innocent? As of up to this point, Jason's kind of been just like bottling it up. (laughs) So... (laughs) He hasn't really been reconciling it too well, but he's uh, just trying not to be combative with the other members of the Coterie. As someone who is sort of a trained hitman assassin, is it more of like tied to your duty? At the end of the day, you're personally committing murder or death. The Coterie's doing the same thing. Why is it an issue? Because his targets aren't typically like innocent people. He's usually... uh, so I guess really the, the the question there, right, is how does Jason then define innocence? Like, well, what is innocence in Jason's mind? We can't get into that. That's that's gonna be <laughs> that is a book right there. Yeah, we'll be here like, for hours. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's it's not that black and white. <laughs> Has Jason met any NPCs that he thinks are innocent? It's totally fine if the answer is no, because I intentionally do not write innocent NPCs. <laughs> Clearly, which is good, because they're all probably going to die anyway. It's the world of darkness. Nobody is purely innocent, though. Uh, Not that I can think of. Mostly it's just been, like, the bystanders or, like, the targets of our feeding. Okay, so so here's a good question, right? Because it's one that I've, I've been wanting to explore for a while, which is, does Jason find corrupt cops, or really cops in general, to be kind of this innocence or shield to protect the innocence. And if so, you know, we've killed a couple of cops so far purely by accident, right? Like, yeah, true. But how, how does Jason, like, what does Jason think about that? I think one of them was pretty innocent of any. <laughs> looking at the one where as soon as we cross the river yeah yeah that yeah one. you're just like hey yo like yeah. you're dead now, you're dead now. Yeah. <laughs> but no jason's definitely been uh feeling really bad about uh a lot of that he just hasn't spoken up about it at this point and i might snap at some point well we don't know <laughs> so, so that actually, threatening us that actually brings up a really good point though was last i guess last episode but right? i mean if a, a cop clearly shows himself to be corrupt, then that is a corruption that needs to be carved out. Okay. So, like, last session, right, we, um, Jason actually lost the point of humanity, right? Yes. And and, and doesn't, didn't feel remorseful for killing that mortal, uh, which I believe is what it was for, right? I thought it was because he didn't help, he allowed the mortal to die. I think it was because he killed her. I, I didn't kill no, no. visions killed okay. her. But yeah, so so Jason let her be killed. Exactly. So do we? Do you feel like Jason is maybe less bottling it up and just becoming more acclimated to death? And this is just the start of his slow slope downward into monsterhood. Well, Jason has seen a lot of death in his very long life, so not so much that. Also, he was pretty drunk at the time. <laughs> <laughs> so, sort of on like a being uncomfortable to sort of do stuff with the party concept, Tommaso. Yeah. 
why do you hate dissolving corpses? <laughs> it's so <laughs> useful. <laughs> uh, okay. Speaking Please of... be our personal wood chipper and you won't. Why? <laughs> <laughs> so speaking of a topic that'll take a long time, I'll try to cut it down a lot. So it goes into a lot of different things. One of the things is that he takes pride in what he does. And what he does most of the time is enforce and kill. So he's removing proof of his good work. But kind of okay. No, that <laughs> takes us back. The bodies that we've been asked you to destroy were times when people were out of control and messed up. So it was not good work. Yeah, it that's, was. That's what I ask. Yeah, is that's when part... it's a time that would it would benefit us to cover it up. Why not? Okay, so there's one other aspect to it, and it's the fact that he was raised Catholic. So in the orphanage that he grew up in, she's an old crone now. But she wasn't. She's basically his surrogate mother. And one of the things she always taught him was respect for the dead. So it basically is one of the few parts of his upbringing that he still carries with him, other than just growing up around violence and crime. So it's something that he just consistently struggles with. I mean, the one time that I can think of doing it and us actually mentioning it at least a little bit we were rushed for time. If he wasn't rushed for time, he probably would have given the corpse last rites before he did anything, but we just didn't have time to do it. So I know that one of the uh, potential flaws that you can take is folkloric bane. Did, did you take that with Tommaso? And if so, why? If not, why not? Oh, I totally did. Yeah, he's got a folkloric bane to holy water. Yeah. It, it'll... Specifically to holy water? Yeah, or to exactly. any holy... No, holy water. water. Okay. Yeah, like if he gets hit by... Holy water, it's going to treat him exactly like the fire did. I just think it's interesting because Clear Visions has the same thing, but like holy objects. <laughs> so why why Clear Visions then? Uh, it's sort of the same. He's very old. Um, he grew up in like the 20s and the 30s. And I think at the back of his mind, he has that sort of religious aspect. It's one of those things of vampires are very good at branding, but a lot of the weird rumors and stuff that are out there about them. Sometimes some of it is true. And I think that that's just one of the things that is pronounced in him. So you, you feel like he just naturally thinks that because it's a holy object and he feels unholy, it's going to have more effect. And so therefore it does. Yeah. It's one of those, like, this is some curse at the end of the day, even though he's, I think benefiting from it a lot, he's been able to extend his life. He probably should have, he should be basically on the out. You know what I mean? He might not even be alive currently if he wasn't uh, given this gift. And it does have some some drawbacks that I think that he spiritually feels. Out of all of us, isn't he uh, to uh, the kindred life? Yeah. The youngest of us. Yes. But he is the oldest soul. <laughs> right. So <laughs> he had the longest mortal life, so he has more of those habits that are ingrained within him. Yeah, that's I, I really did picture him like while his late wife was living, they probably did go to church like every week and really had a, more of a simple life than he currently does. That does lead into a question that I have for Clear Visions, because Clear Visions really sort of strikes me as someone who sucked the marrow out of life. It's pretty traumatizing going from being mortal to being a vampire. What do you think that Clear Visions misses about his mortal life? Oh, this is, it's actually really easy and it's really simple. He was working at a coffee shop and he can no longer enjoy that. 
He can't make coffee and taste it and figure out different blends and mixtures that he could use to make that. He's, it's, it was a comfort time for him. He worked at a coffee shop with his wife before she passed, and he can no longer enjoy those things. Clear Visions, at times, seems happy. Mm-hmm. He seems to enjoy being a vampire at times. It's one of those things of my personal belief is he looks at it as a gift. He would be dead currently. He is not, so he may as well use the time that he has and try to just make the most of it. He's as, about as happy as a vampire can be. And he, he lived a long life. He's already accomplished a bunch of things. Why not try to do some things that are now out of the box and sort of just big? What about Gordon? What sort of things has uh, carried over from his past life? Yeah, so like I said, I mean, Gordon's primary operas, Mirandi, is the fact that he is a spook, right? Like, think of like Nick Fury level of like secrets within secrets within secrets kind of thing. Um, even his also name. Guy Fieri. He That's true. Also Guy Fieri. Yeah. <laughs> he brings the boom to Jamestown. No, wait, that's not Guy Fieri. That's uh, Emerald. That's <laughs> <laughs> it's Bam. It's Bam. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but yeah, I think with a lot of like Gordon, it's it's all wrapped in secrets, right? Even the name that you guys know now is not his real name. Everything he's done in his life has been... Um, kind of to further whoever he's working for, right? He, he's given, you know, first he gave his life to the U.S. government throughout the 60s, and it ended to his marriage, right? And then um, you look at, you know, when he was turned and he started giving his life towards the La Sombra and furthering the La, Som- La Sombra clan and their information gathering. And now it's kind of like he's entered into this rebellious phase of his life where he really wants to still help the Lasombra, but he also kind of hates life right now. Like he realizes that everything he's done has always been kind of useless in a way, right? Like, you know, looking back at some of his more covert missions, he sees it as just furthering the whims of whoever's in power at that time. And because of that, he's become very, um, friction, like he he fr- has a lot of friction with uh, leadership as a whole right now. Yes, that makes sense. So it sounds like he might be the type who might have had a difficult time transitioning after the, with his embrace. <laughs> oh, absolutely! Like his embrace was probably one of the more darker embraces at the table. Honestly, yeah. So going along with that, uh, since we know like part of his past is the fact that his sire basically interceded and ruined his whole life. Yeah, in order to then test him and bring him to that embrace. If that didn't happen, do you think Gordon would have stayed happy in his life, maybe turned away from the spy life, maybe even switched loyalties? Uh, I don't think he would have ever switched loyalties. I I don't think that that's within him. Like, despite the fact that he has clearly uh, got some issues with authority going on, his loyalty is to his clan. And... he very much embodies that whole my clan right or wrong uh, kind of mentality, right? And you see it with his dealings with Clear Visions and Tommaso even, right? He, totally. He, his main goal is to further the clan's goals, not the Camarillas, right? Um, if he had never been turned, 
he probably would have stayed a spy for the rest of his life until it killed him. Okay. Right. Um, some of the things that I, some of the ideas that I had going around about his past, uh, it definitely wouldn't have been possible as a human. I think he would have died on a mission if uh, he wasn't a kindred at that point. Do you think that part of the reason being kindred has worked for him is because he has someone like the Lissombra to work for, and it's kind of a familiar kind of aspect, like his old job. Yeah, I think so. I, it especially helps that his sire was also his original commanding officer, mm-hmm. right? Um, it, it kind of helps tie him to the Lissombra, and you know, not having anyone really to go back to also helps that a lot. And Lissombra is his family now, and kind of similar to the way Tommaso treats family with uh, the Giovannis, right? Yeah, like, exactly. I, I think that's always been an interesting dichotomy between our two characters, is that you view yours as family, and it's a very different relationship between that and the family that I have. Yeah, absolutely. There's different loyalties, there's different organizations, there's different issues, but there's still that same basic tenet of, I've got to stay true to them. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I know. I really like that. Especially, it's funny you mentioned family. The Giovanni are the family, capital T, capital yep. F. So, really, what made you pick the Giovanni? Well, as I mentioned before, I was really looking for some kind of archetype where I could play an enforcer style character. And it really started to evolve in my mind that it just really made sense for him to have been picked up as part of the family organization in his younger years. And it was just something he was always working toward, even though it took until he came over to America to really learn the truth. And then he had the goal of just not being a soldati, but actually being embraced and becoming more important. Now, I would imagine, I would imagine there's some that regret doing that with him just because of the way he operates. But it's definitely something that's always driven him, partly, is being very loyal since he lost his actual family very young. Just having some kind of thing to be loyal to like that has always been important to him. You know, you talk about loyalty and stuff, and how does Tommaso deal with, like, a Giovanni asking him to disintegrate a body for him? He wouldn't protest as much at that point. Like, in in that kind of situation, good to know. Helping the family, it might be a little bit easier of a task. I mean, as as you guys tell, he'll do it. He'll just complain loudly about it, just because it's something he doesn't like doing. Basically, I think you've probably noticed he tries to stay away from embracing most of the more. Um, I don't want to necessarily say like metaphysical, but the the weirder like occult side of the Giovanni just because it's something he's not strong about. He's always been very grounded in the real world, and he feels like that's something that it just really isn't his lane. So at what point was uh, Tommaso embraced in his life then? So he was like in his mid-30s, pretty much. He had come over to New York. Um, there'd been a little bit of action in terms of Mike, help me out here. It was the um, the Sabbat. Uh, this is rooted in. If you've read the Vampire the Masquerade Clan novels, 
there is an era when the Sabat invade and lead an assault upon the east coast of the U.S., and the Giovanni were incredibly successful at repelling them. That was really kind of coincided with when Tommaso came over, so he was really able to prove himself during all of that fighting, and that's what led to him being embraced and moving further up in the family organization. Okay, so the embrace was always just kind of like in your plans as just a part of your life. Yeah, so exactly. It, it wasn't really that difficult of a thing for you then. Yeah, exactly. Like, as as we've seen with Rosetta, for example, she's been a ghoul for a good while. Oh, yeah. And but, as somebody, like, I actually put the points in to make her sort of like part of our team. Mm-hmm. It's something I really looked into of the Giovanni and Clan Hakeda in general. They really, they ghoul for a long time. Yep. There is an extensive vetting process. You are ghouled, you're trained. They don't embrace lightly. Yeah, and exactly. You, oh, they have to put a ton of time and work in to even advance that level. Yeah. So I just think it's cool that Tommaso has thought about what kind of event would be able to basically push him up to be to make him up for promotion. Yeah, exactly. And I mean, part of the brushing forward of his embrace was the losses that they experienced against against the Sabbat. So there might have been more argument against embracing him if there'd been more people around to argue against it. If the, yeah, if there weren't so many openings, would it have been a, an easier choice? It's a great basically, question. Basically, yeah. And we can't really know. So uh, talking about family has really made me want to bring this up to Jason, which is Jason's kind of a loner. He likes doing things on his own. Gordon's the same way, but kind of talk to me. Has he worked with other coteries in the past? Is this the first coterie he's worked with? Has he always been a lone agent? Uh, so, yes. Uh, as part of the Banu Hakim, uh, who are essentially mercenaries in the kindred world he would have gone through extensive training uh his sire was military so he got a lot of that the militaristic nuances that he learned from his sire and then following through on various operations worldwide so he he's been part of coteries in the past but as he developed his skills he he's been able to do more things on his own since he's the oldest out of all of us is would he consider this one of the most challenging situations he's faced facing off against this cult and all of this arcane stuff or is this kind of a walk in the park if he was with a more experienced coterie it would be a walk in the park (laughs) (laughs) ow the shade speak for yourself the sunlight and the shade jason's kind of as as the elder of the group, Jason kind of sees it as uh, a learning experience to uh, develop this coterie. So he is my dad. Great. <laughs> yeah, basically. So <laughs> in that aspect, you can imagine how irked he gets because you keep calling him kid. <laughs> it, it, it really just goes to Clear Vision's aspect of we are a family together. <laughs> <laughs> we are a chosen family, and I can't help it that you are our de facto teen. <laughs> yeah, right. So, angsty, angsty. on that same hand, you know, he, he's used to people treating him as a sort of younger individual, obviously, because he's stuck in that sort of form. In ways, he's also used that to his advantage, just allowing people to underestimate him. So, would you say that? 
if given the opportunity to cast a magic spell, Jason would age his body? And if so, what age do you think he would prefer to be? Good question. Never really thought about that. He might do it, but not by a lot. He might just advance it so maybe he was less of a teen and more like maybe mid-late 20s. Okay, so basically so he could drink. That's right. (laughs) Right. Born in the 20s, too. I think that does kind of lead into one of my questions for him is what does Jason miss about his mortal life? He was embraced really young. And Jason came from a little bit of hardship. Being embraced so young, Jason didn't really get a whole lot of that mortal experience. So he wouldn't really miss so much from the mortal life so much as missing, feeling like he's missed out on a lot of different experiences that he could have had. So clear visions. Why a sand crane? Cranes are very linked to psychic energy and profit and fortune telling. I also knew that from a gameplay perspective, I wanted to have a bird and I wanted to have a bird who was native to our current environment. Sandhill cranes are really well known for traveling up and down and through sort of the bluegrass Appalachia area. And I wanted something that it is sort of a show-off-y, sort of like a, it looks very fancy for an animal, but it is something that there is the presumption of doubt where I could just say like, oh, it looks like a sandhill crane perched here. That's kind of, yeah, whatever. So it kind of blends in. Yeah. If we were in a more urban environment, I probably would have done something more like a dove or a pigeon or something like that. But because of where we're at, I thought it was very appropriate. Let's talk about Rosetta. Yeah. What are your intentions with our lovely uh, retainer that you've charmed? So I I wanted to have a ghoul from a mechanic perspective. I think that they're interesting. I also knew that I wanted sort of a personal assistant to Clear Visions. I have been keeping it in my back pocket that if push comes to shove and we really need a a fighter here and someone who will be a really strong ally, I as the player would have questions, but I am very open to giving her the embrace. But it's also Mm -hmm. something that would be an immediate slight to some of our powerful allies. Yeah, You, You don't poach like that. I don't know. I've thought about it a lot. I don't know. I feel like it's been sort of teeming under the surface of why would they sort of why are they outsourcing the training of one of their ghouls? That's not a typical Hakata Giovanni thing. Rosetta is deeply loyal. She is in this situation because of her ambition, not in spite of it. So this is something that she actually wanted to be here. She is here doing what she wants to do. Now, Clear Visions embracing her would be a total change. And her entire view of what's going to happen here. Mm -hmm. But the thing that would break her would be understanding just how little of a shit the Hikado really give about her. Yep. And that's why I gave her the nugget of putting in a good word for her with the Kapo that one time. Because I know that's something that she really wants. Because I know her very well, obviously. She and I have worked together plenty of times. To sort of bring it back to, I guess, Clear Vision's motivation with her, I think he, similar to how he looks at Jason as sort of a surrogate kid, even though he's definitely not, he is hypercritical, but very proud of Rosetta. I think that he's trying to train her and get her to do things in a particular way that he enjoys, but also is there to, at the end of the day, take care of her. 
So I guess that brings up a question of mine, specifically about clear visions and the way that he views kindred life, Mm -hmm. which is of the four characters, he is the youngest by far. Mm -hmm. And he's only been embraced, what, like 10 years, if that? Yeah, it's like 30. So do you really think that he has an idea of what the Toreador look for in new recruits has he ever embraced anyone does he know like what that process is like what that uh what they're going to go through beyond what his you know what his was like i think that you're firmly getting into spoiler territory that i don't want to dig into i also will say he has not embraced anyone and he would not be looking for stereotypical toreador features if that's what you're getting at yeah yeah that's that's my quick and dirty and my lips are sealed so stop asking (laughs) never so mike let's kind of talk for a moment i know that they're you know the general theme of um vampire the masquerade is you know an alternate world of where we are now right so can you kind of give us an idea of what made you choose jamestown and what was the kind of the thought process into building this bluegrass by night setting That's a great question and something that everyone who runs a game wants to be asked. The thought process behind this started with the writings of a Scottish king who became an English king. That was the demonology. This was King James, and he wrote a pretty long and involved story. And also, this was in an era when uh, when the Americas were being colonized. And that meant that some of his colonists went into the new world with these ideas in their mind that they were going to find these beasts. And I decided, what if they brought them with them? What if they were there the entire time on your ship and you just didn't know about it? How would they influence your colony developing? And so I looked at places that I knew fairly well that I felt like I could shape and portray faithfully, but that I could also adapt and make them very clearly a fictional world because it's so important to me. Something that I want to make really clear is that Bluegrass by Night is not meant to be an allegory for the real world because there are there are many reasons. The biggest reason is that there's a lot of elements of U.S. history that I am not prepared to speak to and that I don't want to be called to account to speak to. So instead, I'm looking at this as purely a work of fiction inspired by an element of history that I think is interesting. So you're taking it more as a, it's just sort of inspired by some things. It's not totally grounded in it. But I, I really think what the core of what you're getting at is RPGs and gaming are supposed to be some some type of escapism. The trouble with a lot of modern settings is it's very easy to get those conflicted sort of vibes. You know what I mean? You're bringing in too much of your personal life. It's not making it as much of like an escape and a social game that we are At the end of the day, we're five people who are playing dice games and telling stories with our friends at a table. You know what I mean? I think if you bring in a lot of those more real-world ideas, it muddies that. It makes it—it's conflicted. But no, that's very true. That's my issue with World of Darkness. I like World of Darkness because of its similarity, but that is a fault in that it's very easy for it to fall into the trap of telling a— an alternate history or an allegory, which I don't want to do. Throw it out there and have fun with it. Yeah. I do appreciate how, like Mike was saying before, we came from a, came together playing 5th edition fantasy sort of D&D. 
And to be able to see how much people have been able to improve their role play and really get into these characters, I think it comes with being in that modern setting. It's a lot easier to sort of inhabit that. I don't have to go through the mental hurdles of, okay, I am playing a half-orc who was raised in the tribal setting, and also he lives in fantasy New York City run by a beholder. You know what I mean? Like, that's a lot of hoops. Where this one, I can be like, okay, I'm a, a southern gentleman who has a dead wife like that's it's a lot easier to try to just figure out from a role play aspect of what i'm going to say and what i'm going to do yeah exactly like when i first joined up i put together my character in like 15 minutes it's a lot more fun to have one that i've really thought about and put a lot of effort into to realize so going off the idea of really developing a character nick in regards to jason with his arcane focus Do you think that's something he would have focused on in his life if he didn't get embraced? Yeah, how many crystals does he own? (laughs) Uh, So no, uh, definitely not. All of that uh, mystery and arcane aspects never would have come to him in his life normally. Would he have worked fast food? (laughs) Sorry. (laughs) How did you guess his one true passion? (laughs) Quick service dining. (laughs) He actually wanted to open his own. Open his own restaurant. Yes, of course. That's, That's supposed to. Chronicle. Yeah. <laughs> hey, yeah. By the way, uh, Jason's Deli. If you want to hit us up, <laughs> clear visions and the way that we've been treating his TV crew. <laughs> oh, yeah. This is yeah. easy. That's a good point. Short on time. Yeah. Clear visions knows and fully embraces that his crew is replaceable. They are working in a Hollywood environment. Every single one of them are replaceable. He does not give two shits. Think about it. He's already hired at least three people in this season. (laughs) 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 Which might not be what they want to think, but... It's his reality. So use them as you will. (laughs) Perfect. And he knows that he has the loyalty that they will throw themselves on the on the track for him so bad i feel so bad i love it (laughs) was clear visions like that before he was embraced or is this his slow descent into being a monster i can confidently say he probably was not like that as a human but he also wasn't fame driven yeah exactly and i think that those go hand in hand yeah it goes right along with it i think that makes sense so would you so would you say that this is his slow descent into being a monster i would say yes but i think in in the the time frame that we've been playing this game that descent has not been very slow (laughs) (laughs) i don't think it's been it's really all that slow for any of us no (laughs) yeah i was gonna say i think nature of the game yeah nature of the game was yeah we are homing in when when it's been ranked. <laughs> we are monsters and we are starting to show it. <laughs> yep. All right. Well, I thought it would be fun to wrap up by calling Mike on the carpet a little bit here. Okay, let's hear it. All right. So if the roles were reversed and one of us was the storyteller, what kind of kindred, what clan would you be playing? I would be playing a gumshoe Nosferatu, like one of my Lani members. Ah. I fucking love them. They are... They're not charming. They think they're very charming. They think that they are very inquisitive and very smart, and that would be incredibly fun to roleplay. I would get to make my storyteller very uncomfortable by asking them questions constantly. Everybody's name, every location, where were they? What time was that? What day did that happen? Can you repeat that all for me again with exactly the same names and dates? (laughs) 
I wish I could say I was surprised <laughs> by that last part. <laughs> yeah, I'm not surprised. <laughs> <at least> that... <laughs> I think that's a good moment for us to wrap up on, though. That was a good question. I appreciate that. Thank Got you. It. Oh, um, some things I wanted to call out before we do our outro. We do have a website. You can find us at monstergamenight.com. I also wanted to give a little shout out to Satsuki. She is the yes. artist who did our, our art, which is on that website. You can find some pictures of actually how we envisioned our characters looking. So that's something to check out. has a live feed. Yeah, absolutely. She was very pleasurable and easy to work with and did an, an amazing job. Yeah, big ups. You can't see us playing because we're not a video format, but I keep that artwork pulled up a lot because it helps me immerse myself in picturing what's going on in the scene. It's incredible. And if you need character art for a Vampire the Masquerade game, hit her up. And a big sincere thank you for listening to everything up to this point. Yeah, <laughs> yes. yeah more coming at you. Yeah, we'll keep going. This We're just getting started. Hey guys, we're Monster Game Night. Thank you so much for joining us this evening. I'm Mike, your storyteller, and I am joined at the table by Ben playing Tommaso, Nick playing Jason, Josh playing Clear Visions, and I'm Russell playing Gordon. Tune in next week. We release an episode every Monday. Also, please feel free to follow us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or your favorite podcatcher. We'd love to hear from you on social media. Find us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram at Monster Game Night. Please give us a rating, write a review, and tell your friends and family about the show if you enjoyed it. Word of mouth is the best way for a small independent show like ours to grow. And we hope that you can come to our next Monster Monster Game Game Night. Night.